All right, if you got your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 5. Exiles to the end, standing in God's grace. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, said, uh, said hey, are we going to do these last three verses? Um, because a couple of weeks ago, we stopped in verse 11, and I said, yes, we got to cross the finish line. We have to cross the finish line. Uh, you've probably seen some of the uh, some of the sports bloopers where the, the running back is sprinting down the field and he drops the ball in celebration right before he crosses the goal line. And, of course, there's no touchdown unless you have the ball when you cross the finish line. There's a little bit of celebration. I um, forgot where that finish line was, and so we don't want to do that. We want to cross the finish line in First Peter. And these last three verses, uh, closing greeting of Peter's letter, um, while these are verses that often it's easy for us to kind of just skip over, even in our Bible reading, we were like, oh, we got the, the meat of the passage, we got the heart of that there, um, and, uh, and so um, we just kind of, this, this last few verses, he's just naming some people and just kind of saying greet, greetings in Christ, and let's get on to the next thing, but actually, um, these last three verses are packed full of um, encouragement and uh, motivation for us as Christians seeking to live for Christ in this world. And so I'm going to read these three verses. You follow along as I read in your copy of God's Word. This is the Word of God. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that your word would be honored, that you, Father, would be honored in the way that we study your word here today. Father, your word is a gift to us, and every word in the Bible is breathed out by you. Father, it doesn't matter if it's in the middle of 1 Peter or at the beginning or the end. Father, every single word is your word towards us. Father, your word teaches us about who you are. Your word teaches us about who we are as your creation made in your image but broken by sin. Father, your word tells us how we can have a reconciled relationship with you through Jesus. And your word tells us how we are to live once we have that reconciled relationship with you. And so, Father, would we just pray that we would approach your word with humility and with eager expectation, Father, that you would work in our hearts over the next few minutes through your word as your Holy Spirit speaks it into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Persevering as an exile requires standing firm in God's grace, regardless of the suffering that we face. Persevering as an exile requires that we stand firm in God's grace, regardless of the suffering we face. Now, in this letter, Peter's writing to suffering Christians. And uh, you've heard me say that if you've been here multiple times, but we always have to take God's word in the context in which it is written, or else we can twist God's word to say something that it is not intended to say. And so we realize that 
there are these suffering Christians. If you go back to the very beginning of the letter, we realize that he's writing to these Christians who are scattered out in different places. Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Cappadocia, all these, Bithynia, all these places. And these Christians are scattered. He calls them exiles. Well, an exile is somebody who lives somewhere where it's not their home. That means they're living in a foreign land. And in some way, these may have been people who had had to leave their physical home and go to another place. But he uses this term in a spiritual sense to say that as Christians, we're all exiles. All of us are living in a place that's not our home. As soon as you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God gives you a new citizenship. He changes your citizenship. Instead of belonging to this world, you now belong in heaven. That is your home. But he doesn't take you there yet. He has a purpose for us here on this earth. I was thinking about even the Apostle Paul in Philippians who said to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, Paul was saying my citizenship is in heaven, which he actually says those words later on in that book in Philippians. But there when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain, he's saying, listen, I, I can't wait to get home. And, and that's really better. That home is better than my, my temporary place here on this earth. But to live is Christ. And to die is gain. It'll be gain when I die. But until that time comes to live is Christ. I am living in Christ, living for Christ so that other people can come to know Christ. And so that their citizenship can be changed as well. And so Peter's writing to elect exiles, people who belong to God. They don't belong to this world, but they're still living in this world. That is a description of every Christian you're here today and you've trusted in Christ, that is a description of you. You are not at home or you are not to be at home here in this world. You have another home. When he gets towards the end of this letter and he's explained and talked about all these reasons, that uh, ways that they are to live out their Christian faith here in this world, he gives them some, some, uh, some encouragement, some challenges of how to endure to the end. If we're facing suffering, that means we're going to have to have this, this attitude in us of a way I want to endure. It's not going to be easy, but I want to remain faithful to the end. He's told us that in order to do that, we have to trust in God's sovereignty over our suffering, that God is in control. He's told us that if we're going to be exiles to the end, we're going to remain faithful. We have to participate in God's church there in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And he's also told us that if we're going to remain exiles to the end, we have to believe in God's power. We saw that in chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. But today, we see this in these final three verses, that if we're going, as Christians, to remain exiles to the end, we must stand in God's grace and keep standing and stand firm in the grace of God. I want to share with you from these three verses four truths concerning Peter's exhortation to stand firm in the grace of God. The first is this, stand firm in God's grace because it is your only hope of being in Christ. Stand firm in God's grace because it is your only hope of being in Christ. Now we start here in verse 12 and he says, by Silvanus. Well, who is this man named Silvanus? This is the Latin form of the Greek name Silas. And so we're probably more familiar with that name Silas. Silas was a pillar of the early church. 
And here Peter affirms him as a trustworthy messenger. Silas traveled with the Apostle Paul. Silas was thrown into prison with Paul in Philippi. If you'll recall that account from God's word in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Silas, Silvanus, was tried and tested and proven to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Well, why does he mention him here? Well, it is most likely that this letter arrived to these churches in the hand of Silas. Peter wrote this letter, but it had to be delivered. And so Silas was the messenger. He carried this letter. And as the messenger, he probably would have also been one to help them understand what Peter was saying. And so Peter, the apostle, affirms Silas, the messenger, as a trustworthy messenger. And then he says this, I have written briefly to you. That's just his way. And we find that phrase in other letters in Scripture uh, that, that the apostles wrote. It's a way of saying I could have said so much more. There's so much more that I could say about this church. But here is what God has led me to write. And then he says this. I've written to you briefly exhorting and declaring, exhorting and declaring that word exhortation or to exhort appears several times in this letter. And it's a it's a word that says it's, it's, it's kind of a combination of teaching and challenging. I have taught you things, and as I've taught you, I haven't taught you them as if we're just indifferent to these truths, but I've taught you in a challenging sort of way. I'm calling you out to live a certain way, and then declaring. Another way to translate that would be to bear witness. This is the Apostle Peter. He walked and talked and lived with Jesus. I, Peter, an Apostle, am bearing witness to you of these things. What is he bearing witness to? That this is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. We want to unpack that phrase and spend a little bit of time on this very important phrase here today. Let's start with that word grace and make sure we all understand what grace is. Grace is simply getting something that you don't deserve. But I like to throw this in there in case you're a little little, um, unsure of what that means. It's getting something good that you don't deserve. Okay, grace is getting something you don't deserve, but it's a good thing. Okay, it's a good thing. Now, we just celebrated Christmas and and um, I'm going to I'm going to tell you something. Every one of you who received a present, all of you children, all of you youth and all of you adults as well. You were shown grace if the standard for you getting something was perfection, because none of us are perfect. A disobedient child getting a Christmas present when standard is the perfection is grace. I know we like to say that you get a gift if you're good and not if you're bad. But the truth is. Every one of us is bad. God's standard is perfection. Here's what that means. If God had the rule that we like to sing about in little Christmas jingles and carols, if he had that rule, we would all be doomed to destruction Because we can never do enough good things to outweigh our bad things. And so anything good that God gives us is a gift of his grace. One evil thought separates us from God. He is 
holy. His standard is perfection. And so anything good we get from God is a gift of grace. Peter uses this word grace nine times in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 10, he uses grace as a way to summarize what he said in verses 3 through 9. Salvation, living hope, eternal inheritance. In chapter 2, verse 13, he uses the word grace to refer to our coming salvation. When God finishes what he starts, when Jesus returns. In chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, we find the word grace two times. And there, interestingly enough, the word grace, that is getting something good that we don't deserve, is used to describe Christians enduring suffering for doing good. That's called getting something good we don't deserve. It's called grace two times there in chapter 2. In chapter 3, verse 7, we have the word grace, and it refers to the life that we have in Christ. In chapter 4, verse 10, we find this word grace, and it's used in the context of God giving us gifts to serve one another in the church. In chapter 5, verse 5, the word grace is used to refer to God's response to humility. God gives grace to the humble. In chapter 5, verse 10, God's grace is used, that word grace is used to refer to God bringing our suffering to an end by completing our salvation. And now Peter closes his letter with this word, the ninth time he's used this word grace in this short letter. And here he uses it to speak about salvation on a whole. Salvation based on God electing us and purchasing us with his blood, the blood of his son, which makes us citizens of heaven living on mission in this world in which we temporarily live and where we temporarily suffer for belonging to God. Grace, grace, grace. Now, I want to pick up a a two word phrase that we find at the very end of this letter, and I want to use it throughout these three verses. Look at the very end of verse 14. Notice that how it ends. Those who are in Christ, in Christ. Listen, as sinners who have messed up, we've rebelled against God. We don't deserve anything good from God, which means we don't deserve heaven. We deserve hell. As sinners, our only hope is that we are in Christ. And as sinners, we don't deserve to be in Christ. And so the only way we can be in Christ is if God shows us grace. So listen, Christian, you're here today. You are a follower of Christ. God has given you salvation. You are in Christ. What Peter says at the end of this letter, you are one who is in Christ. Let me tell you something to tell you. I'm going to tell myself you are in Christ. By God's grace and his grace alone. He says this, uses this phrase, this is the true grace of God. What is the this that he is talking about? When he says this is the true grace of God. Now I think that he is referring to his entire letter when he uses that word this. It's a summary of his entire, he said, everything that I've told you, this is the true grace of God. What does he explain? What has he taught about? He has taught them what it means to be in Christ. He has given them a description of those who are in Christ. Well, let me say it this way. I'm going to give you one long sentence, okay? Not intending for you to try to write this down. If you, you're that fast of a writer, you can, you can try to write it down. But I want to see, see if we can summarize Peter's entire letter in one long sentence. It may even be a run-on sentence, but listen, it's Christmas break. Don't, don't, don't judge my grammar, okay? Those whom God chooses for salvation experience the free gift of being born again to a living hope 
by being united to Christ through his precious blood applied to their lives when they place their faith in him, which leads to temporary suffering as they live holy lives as exiles in this world, but eternal glory when Christ returns and completes their salvation. That's a summary of all that Peter has said. And so he says, this is the true grace of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Why have these Christians needed to be reminded that this is the true grace of God? Why did they need Peter to write them this letter? Remember the context. They are suffering for Christ. And suffering may have led to a thought that perhaps this wasn't the true grace of God. Maybe we missed it. Maybe there's some other grace of God out there. Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, confirms that this is the true grace of God. Suffering is the path to exaltation. Suffering is a part of God's grace in our lives. It's not opposition to it. If Jesus suffered, his followers will suffer. If Jesus' suffering led to his exaltation, the same will be true for his followers. Suffering for the cause of Christ is the normal life of a Christian. This past week, I overheard my wife in the kitchen. She was cooking with Letty. Um, and, uh, and Letty asked why she was doing whatever it was she was doing. The typical why question. Why are you doing that, Mommy? To which my very humble wife replied, because that is a mark of a true chef. Yeah. I looked up for my computer you got the pictures? Letty says, why are you doing that? And she said, and my wife says, because that's the mark of a true chef. I was working on this sermon and looked up from my computer where I was sitting at the kitchen table. I looked at my wife. She looked over at me. I rolled my eyes at her and I told her she better be careful what she says while I'm writing my sermon because it just might wind up as an illustration. Well, Whatever my wife was doing in the kitchen may or may not have been a mark of a true chef. I'm not sure if she was serious or if she was being sarcastic in that moment. Um, But the Apostle Peter has spent this letter declaring that suffering for Christ is a mark of a true Christian. Suffering for Christ is a mark of a true Christian. Suffering for Christ is evidence that a person belongs to Jesus and is being purified by God in preparation of being wedded to Christ as his spotless bride one day. Suffering for Christ is a part of having living hope by God's grace. Peter calls this the true grace of God. Why, why does he call? Why does he call this grace? Why does he call this something that we don't deserve? Because it's something that we don't deserve. All of this is only a reality because God has done it. Listen, that's what grace means. It means God did it, not me. It is a free gift. It's God's unmerited favor towards helpless sinners. He, I mean, I'm going to use some language that Peter has, has used. You could kind of scan back through as I say this, and you would find these phrases. It, it. He is the one, God is the one who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the imperishable seed of his word. He is building us up as living stones into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood founded upon Christ as our cornerstone. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has ransomed us with the blood of his son and healed our sin sick uh, hearts with his wounds. He has made us exiles in this world and we don't deserve it. Listen, 
It's a good thing to be an exile in this world. We deserve to belong to this world, to be enslaved to this world, to be devoured by the devil who prowls around this world, to be caught up in the flood of debauchery along with everyone else who belongs to this world, to live in darkness and to die in darkness and to experience eternal darkness with everyone else who belongs to this world, who are citizens of hell rather rather than citizens of heaven. That's what we deserve. But by God's grace. That is not who we are, nor what we get. Listen, listen, we have hope. This is the joy of Christmas. We have hope that when we are hated for righteousness sake. We have hope in the midst of sorrow, hope in the midst of suffering, hope in the trials of life, hope in the face of death, regardless of what happens as recipients of the true grace of God, we have hope. Hope. Why this word true? Because there's no other way. There's no other way for us to have the hope of being found in Christ than for God to look at us and choose to love us out of his gracious, merciful, compassionate love towards us. It's our only hope. We have a little thing. I'll tell you what it is in a moment. Sitting Right behind our kitchen sink. And the other day, my daughter, Sadie, she's three. She said, she said, Daddy, she said, she looked up there. She said, I, I need, I need the hope to pin her, the hope to pin her. Now, you have to realize that Sadie can't say her S's. They all come out as H's. And so what she was wanting was a little snowman soap dispenser. She needed to wash her hands. And she said, Daddy, she said, I, I, I need that hope to pin her. And I said, let me get you some of that soap. And as I thought about that, I thought about the true grace of God. Listen, she knew where to go to find that soap to clean her hands. There was one place and it was coming out of that hope to pin her. All right. That soap dispenser, it had, it had that soap in there. And she knew where to go for it. It wasn't laying around the kitchen anywhere else. That was where it was at. Can I tell you that we have a hope dispenser? We have a hope dispenser and it is the grace of God. And if you look for hope in this life anywhere else, you will not find it. Not the kind of hope that Peter has taught us about in this letter. Living and abiding hope. Hope that is alive, that even death cannot take away from us. It is the true grace of God. There is no else. But notice, he says to stand firm in it. Why would he need to say stand firm in it? Listen, you don't need to be told to stand firm, to hold fast, unless a storm is either here or is coming. Listen, if suffering, if living for Christ is not bringing suffering into your life right now, it will at some point. If I could speak especially to our young people right now. Listen, we, we live in a country where for, for, for many, many years there hasn't been much suffering for Christ. But I'm no prophet at all. But I will say, I think 
young people, that you will suffer more for Christ than your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents did here in this country. It doesn't mean that there hasn't been suffering for Christ in other places around our world. There always has been and there always will be until Christ comes. But here in our country, listen to me. First Peter is for you, young people, as you prepare. Peter's looking at you and he's saying, hold fast, stand firm in the grace of of God. No matter what comes your way, suffering for Christ is inevitable for really living as exiles in this world. And so we've got to hold fast to this living hope. We must stand firm in this true grace. It is our only hope of being in Christ and of being in Christ and being in Christ is our only hope for belonging to God rather than this world. And so we hold fast, church. Listen to this. We hold fast to what God has done for us, not for what we do for God. We hold fast to what God has done for us. We don't hold fast to what we do for God. It's good to do things for God, but that's not what we hold on to. Our hope in life and in death is what God has done for us through Christ. Christian, stand firm in God's grace because it is your only hope of being in Christ. Truth number two is this. Stand firm in God's grace through the confidence provided by your election in Christ. Stand firm in God's grace through the confidence provided by your election in Christ. We find here in verse 13 a word that we don't want to read over too quickly. It's a word that I think Peter, inspired by the Spirit, uses very particularly. It's a choice word, and it is the word chosen. Notice, and we'll talk about the rest of this verse in a moment. She who is at Babylon, we'll talk about who that is in a, in a minute, but just for now, this is a church. She referring to a church who is at Babylon. We'll talk about what all that means. Who is likewise chosen sends you greetings. She, this church, these believers who are likewise chosen. This letter, we don't want to miss this. This is why we study a whole letter at one time. It is bookended with the truth that those who are in Christ are in Christ ultimately because God chose them to be in Christ. Look back at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. To those who are elect exiles. We've been using that phrase over and over as we've studied. He calls them not Christians, not because it's wrong to call ourselves Christians, but he uses this phrase elect exiles to those who are elect exiles. It's the same word that he uses here. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen or who is elect. And then right in the middle of this letter, he uses this word to refer to God's people in chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So three times in this letter, in the very beginning, in the middle, and at the very end, he calls the people of God elect, or chosen. Listen, the biblical doctrine of election is that God chooses people out of this world to belong to himself. Election does not negate, nor does it diminish the need for people to choose to place their faith in Jesus. But it does mean that the only way we are able to choose Jesus is because God first chose us. John said it this way in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. 
Listen, a coach may tell his players to have confidence that they will win because they have trained hard. A teacher may tell her students to have confidence that they will pass the exam because they have studied hard. A coworker may tell you that uh, to have confidence that you will get the promotion because you have worked hard and have proven yourself. But for a Christian, our confidence that we are in Christ comes not from anything that we have done, but from the truth that God has chosen us to belong to himself. Now, why would Peter use this language in a letter to suffering Christians? Well, for the suffering Christian, the truth that God has chosen us to belong to himself boosts our confidence that God will finish what he started. That future glory definitely awaits those who are in Christ. The biblical doctrine of election is not an arrogance booster because it reminds me that God did it, not me. My belonging to God is God's doing, not my own. But the doctrine of election is a confidence booster as I'm reminded that those whom he has chosen are never forsaken by him. We read back in verse eight that there is a devil and that he's our adversary and he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Listen, the devil may use our suffering, Christian, to try to shake our confidence in Christ. But we have to fight back with the truth of God's word, as Paul says in Romans. And we know For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So sure is our salvation that Paul speaks in Romans about a future event in the past tense. In Paul's mind, we've already been glorified. We're already in heaven because it's guaranteed that when God places his stamp of belonging to himself on us, he will not remove it. Christians, stand firm in God's grace through the confidence provided by your election in Christ. Truth number three is this. Stand firm in God's grace together with your family in Christ. Peter's using this greeting, this closing greeting to summarize and point them back to some main themes in this letter. Stand firm in God's grace together with your family in Christ. Now, we have several examples of that, even in the language that he uses here in verses 12 through 14. Remember how verse 12 starts. By Sylvanus or Silas, a faithful brother. It's the language of family. Then she who is at Babylon... Sends you greetings. He's talking about here a church, most likely not an individual lady, but he's talking about a church. Remember, the church is called the bride of Christ. So it makes sense that he would use a feminine pronoun to refer to a church who is at Babylon. Does this mean Peter is in Babylon? That's that place we read about in the Old Testament. Probably not. He's probably not in that location. Babylon is used in Scripture to refer to the evil world to which we don't belong. Remember, the Jews were sent as exiles to Babylon. And here he is talking to Christians who are exiles in this world. Specifically, it could be a reference to Rome. It could be that Peter is in Rome and he's referring to the church in Rome is sending their greetings to these Christians in Asia Minor. We don't know that for sure that It exactly was Rome. He could just be using the word Babylon to refer to this evil world. So the church, wherever he was at, is sending their greetings. Listen, the church cared about 
other believers. They were in this together. And then he says, and so does Mark, my son. So we have the word brother. We have the word son. This is not Peter's actual biological son. This is John Mark. This is the the man that we read about in Acts chapter 2, verse 12, that the church met in his home. This is the man who was rejected by Paul, but later Paul welcomed him back and he was of great help to Paul in his missionary journeys. And now he is of help to Peter. So does Mark, my son. We have this family language going on here. And then in verse 14, he says, greet one another with the kiss of of love. Now, before you walk out of here kissing everyone on your way out the door, please know that in no way do I think the way we apply this is by kissing one another. Especially during flu season. Okay? Probably shouldn't even shake hands with one another today. But, but, what in the world is he talking about when he says greet one another with a kiss of love? This was a way that they greeted each other in this day and time. OK, it was a way that they expressed their fellowship with one another, just as we might would shake a hand or hug a neck or something like that. This is a way that they greeted. And so he's saying greet one another, but do it in love. In other words, he's saying, listen to me. Your church family is important. It's vital. And it's vital that you love one another. Paul uses this phrase, except he calls it a holy kiss, in several of his letters. He ends Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and 1 Thessalonians telling them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Listen, there we are called in the body of Christ to love one another. In chapter 1, verse 22, Peter said to love one another earnestly. In chapter 2, verse 17, he said to love the brotherhood. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says to have brotherly love. And in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why would he say that to suffering Christians? Because listen to me, we need to know that we don't have to stand firm in the grace of God by ourselves. We don't have to do that. And I would suggest that we can't do it by ourselves. If we're going to stand firm in God's grace, we must live in close community with the people of grace. If we're going to stand firm in God's grace, we must live in close community with the people of grace. I don't know how many of you watched any football this weekend, but I'll just say that I did and leave it at that. But I noticed as I was watching one of the games and a player who was wearing one particular color. He he got pushed out of bounds and he fell down. And I noticed that nobody helped him up when he fell out of bounds. And he was surrounded by people. But the problem was, the people that were all around him were wearing a different color than he was wearing. He fell into the sidelines of the opposite team. And they all just stood there and looked at him. And he had to pick himself back up. But you know what? If those guys standing around him would have had the same color on There'd have been about five or six of them reaching down and getting him back up. Get back out there. Get back out there on the field. You got this. That's why we need one another. Listen, we don't belong to the world. We have to live in the world. We have to live in the world, but we need one another to keep us going, to keep us strong and standing firm in God's grace. 
And if we divorce ourselves from the people of God, then it's going to be really difficult for us to stand firm in God's grace amidst the persecutions that may and probably will come our way. If I can speak to our young people one more time, specifically. Listen, the percentage of students that graduate from high school and then never go back to church is astronomical. It's through the roof. And I can guarantee you that almost all of them, if not every single one of them, that never darken the doors of a church again, are not standing firm in God's grace. You have to make a choice in your mind that God has given you the church because you need it. And you're not just belonging to a youth group, you're belonging to the body of Christ. And you belong to the body of Christ as long as God gives you breath in your lungs here and you stay involved in the body of Christ. Because I can guarantee you, if you will, the probability is through the roof that you will remain standing firm in God's grace. Stand firm in God's grace together with your family in Christ. Fourth and finally, we have this final phrase in verse 14. And we learn this. Stand firm, church, in God's grace because genuine peace is found only in Christ. Genuine peace is found only in Christ. Notice how he ends this letter. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I want to tell you something. Anybody can say peace to you. Anybody can say I, I hope you have peace. I, I want peace for your life. But when a Christian says peace be to you who are in Christ, it's a different kind of peace than the world would offer. It is an eternal peace between you and the most holy God. It is a peace that only God's grace can bring because it is a peace. It is a peace that is found only in Christ. Listen to me. Our greatest need in a world that is writhing against its creator and against one another because of the brokenness through sin that we all live in, our greatest need in that world is peace. Let me define this peace this way. Peace is the settled condition of a heart and mind at rest in God's saving grace. Peace is the settled condition of a heart and mind at rest in God's saving grace. John chapter 14, verse 27. Peter isn't just pulling this out of thin air. He was with Jesus when Jesus said these words. Jesus said the night that he was going to be arrested and then crucified, he said this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Listen, he's talking to the disciples who are getting ready to see him arrested in the garden, who are going to run away. Most of them did because they were scared. They're getting ready to see their master nailed to a cross. They are getting ready to be enemies of the state for the rest of their lives. And Jesus looks at them and says, peace. I leave with you my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Listen, peace is a welcome word to suffering Christians. As Christians, we don't go looking for suffering, but we are not surprised when it comes looking for us. We are exiles. We don't belong to this world. Thus, the more we look like citizens of heaven while we live in this world, the more we will experience the opposition of this world. 
But the opposition that we face, the the suffering we experience ought to make us more confident that we don't belong to this world. It ought to make us more burdened for the lost around us who still belong to this world. Christian, our suffering ought to make us more humbled that God would love us enough to sacrifice his son, to transform our citizenship from the darkness of this world to the marvelous light of his glory. It ought to make us more in love with the things of heaven than the things of this world. It ought to make us more passionate about seeing God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It ought to make us more courageous to declare the powerful gospel that is our Our living hope, hope in life as exiles here and hope in death as we enter into our eternal home. And it ought to make us more eager, longing more and more each day for the revelation of Jesus Christ, who will come and gather the elect exiles from the ends of the earth and welcome us into his eternal glory. In the midst of suffering, Christian, we rest. Our hearts are at peace in God's saving grace. That is true peace. One writer said it this way. The roar of the lion or the flames of persecution cannot overthrow the shalom. He uses that Hebrew word for peace. The shalom of Christ's salvation. Listen, Christian, our only hope for experiencing this kind of peace is God's bestowing upon us the privilege of being in Christ. I wonder today if you are in Christ. If you are, then you have experienced the grace of God. Praise the Lord. If you're not in Christ, if you belong to this world and not to God, good news. God is ready to give you a gift of grace. It's free. You don't have to do anything to earn it. All you have to do is receive it. And the way you receive it is by placing your faith in Jesus. By saying, I believe that Jesus is the answer to the sin in my heart. That he died on the cross to rescue me. He paid the price for my sins. And I trust in what he did. To rescue me. And he is now the Lord. Of my life. If you make that confession to God. He will shower you with his grace. And it will be yours forever. And it will put a peace in your heart. That passes all understanding. I'm going to close with. The words of one writer who I think very fittingly draws this letter to a close. He said this, so he, Peter, leaves his people to the peace of God, which is greater than all the troubles and the distresses that this world can bring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for the peace that floods our souls when Christ is in us and we are in Christ. And we thank You for Your grace. For, Father, if it weren't for the way that You love us unconditionally, despite our sin, if it weren't for the 
fact that you chose to love us before you ever created us, knowing that we would rebel against you. Father, if it weren't for you offering salvation as a free gift, Father, none of us would ever experience what it means to live with a living hope. Father, Christ is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. This is the true grace that comes from you. Yes, Father, it brings suffering in this life, but it brings eternal glory forever and ever with you. Father, focus our hearts and minds on the grace of God in this moment, on your grace towards us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.